Welcome to My American Melting Pot, the podcast where we tell stories and have conversations that meet at the intersection of race and real life. I'm your host, Lori L. Tharps. I'm an author, a journalist, a mother of three, and a self-proclaimed diversity diva. I'm really glad you're here because this show could be life-changing. On episode 18 of My American Melting Pot, we're going to be talking about how and when to talk to our children about race. Now, before you hit pause because you think you've heard all this before, stop. I'm not going to be giving you some cookie cutter, color by number script on how to talk to your children about race because, first of all, I don't know your children. I don't know what race your children are. I don't know how old they are. I don't know if they already have ideas about race. I don't know what your ideas are about race. And all of these factors matter when we strike up a conversation about race with our children. So today I've asked three really smart educators who are all mothers and who are all from different racial backgrounds to join me for this conversation. We're going to talk about how we should be talking to our kids, when we should be talking to our kids, and most importantly, what the heck we should even be talking about when we say we need to talk to our kids about race. We're going all in with this conversation, and I can't wait to get started. But you know we have to take a break for a Melting Pot Minute. Today's Melting Pot Minute is brought to you by the My American Melting Pot Book Club. The My American Melting Pot Book Club. Reading books that center on cross-cultural relationships since May of this year. We're new, but we're awesome. The My American Melting Pot Book Club. Hello, Melting Pot community. Last week, I announced on the blog the next book we'd be reading for the My American Melting Pot Book Club. Just so you remember, in the My American Melting Pot Book Club, we read books by authors of diverse ethnic and cultural backgrounds who tell stories that explore cross-cultural connections. Books are selected because of the quality of the writing, the uniqueness of the story told, and the possibility for a transformative experience after reading. We read both fiction and nonfiction. So our new book, It's called The Other Americans by Leila Lalami. The Other Americans begins with the suspicious death of a Moroccan immigrant who has built a successful life for himself and his family in California. Here's what it says on the jacket copy. The Other Americans is at once a family saga, a murder mystery, and a love story informed by the treacherous fault lines of American culture. And that's why it's so good. Not only do we have drama, romance, and a mystery— The story is told through the voices of multiple characters, all from different ethnic and racial backgrounds, and each one of them was somehow impacted by this one man's death. I read this book over the summer and knew right away that it had to be our next book club pick. The cast of characters is really diverse, and yet the themes explored are so universal and so timely. I don't want to give anything away because that's part of the thrill of this book, guessing who committed the crime and why, as well as keeping track of all the drama between the different characters. And trust me, there is a lot of drama in this book. So get your copy of The Other Americans and read along with us. We'll be having a virtual book club meetup in October. And best part, Leila Lalami, the author of The Other Americans, will be a guest on the podcast later in October as well. You can join the book club on the My American Melting Pot Facebook page. Until then, happy reading, Melting Pot community. Now, let's get to our conversation about talking to our kids about race. Joining me in the studio today are three amazing women who are all really smart, really accomplished, and really cool people. And I'd like to take a moment to introduce them one by one. First, we have Lisa Nelson Haynes. Lisa is the executive director of Philadelphia Young Playwrights, where she helps young people discover their potential through the art of the play. Currently, Lisa is also executive producer of Mouthful, Philadelphia Young Playwrights podcast that digs into the experiences and perspectives of young people to start conversations about big ideas and important issues. An award-winning storyteller and teacher, Lisa is a graduate of Hampton University. Lisa, welcome to My American Melting Pot. Thank you so much for having me. Next, we have Eileen Flanagan. Eileen is a climate justice leader who offers online courses on effective activism. She is also the award-winning author of three books, and she is working on her fourth book about the intersection of race and climate. Side note, Eileen wrote a wonderful essay on this topic for the My American Melting Pot blog, and I'll drop the link in today's show notes. A graduate of Duke and Yale Universities, 
In addition to helping people to make their activism more effective through her online courses, Eileen speaks to international audiences on how to build a spiritually grounded and effective climate justice movement. Welcome to My American Melting Pot, Eileen. It's great to be here. Thanks, Lori. And finally, we have Homa Sabet Tavangar. Homa is the author of the best-selling book, Growing Up Global, Raising Children to Be at Home in the World, and the just-published Global Kids Activity Cards from Barefoot Books. She's also the co-author of five books for educators, and she has written for numerous national websites. Born in Iran, she has lived on four continents, and her heritage includes four world religions. Homa is a graduate of UCLA and Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School. Homa, welcome to My American Melting Pot. Thank you so much, Lori. Before we dive into our conversation, ladies, I'd like to ask each of you to tell our listeners how you identify racially and also how your children identify and how old your children are. So, Homa, why don't we start with you? That's even a loaded question for me. (laughs) That should be the easy one. So my heritage is Iranian. I guess that's the short answer. Okay. My children are 26, 24, and 16. And they are definitely treated, I would say, some days with privilege and most days seen as a brown person, if that yeah, makes any sense. That totally makes sense. It makes absolute sense. And I'm glad you're you're already kind of sharing that this is a, like you said, it's a loaded question. And I didn't actually ask, what is the gender of your children? Can you just tell me? Oh, I have three daughters. Three daughters. And you have children spaced like I do, where you have two and then a third one that's like, yay, a couple years later. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Excellent. Lisa, what about you? How do you identify racially or ethnically? And how do your kids identify? And how old are your kids and what gender? So I self-identify as African-American, as do my two children. Olivia is 19, excuse me, Olivia's 20. Ooh. Oof, I know. <laughs> and Yannick is 17. So, mm-hmm. and Yannick is a boy, And obviously. Yannick's a boy, yes. Okay. I have a, my daughter's the oldest and Yannick's the youngest. And Eileen, what about you? How do you identify racially or ethnically? What about your kids and how old are your kids? I identify as white or Irish-American and my two children identify as white. My daughter is 22 and my son is 20. Seriously, amazing. Like, just let's just all give ourselves a round of applause that our children are alive and thriving Mm -hmm. and out in the world. So congratulations, all of us. So I want to start this conversation. First, I want to remind people that everything that we're talking about today, like all of us are professional educators, but we're also parents. So everything we're talking about today is informed by our education, but also by practice, by real world, real life experiences. So the first question I actually want to, I want to start with Eileen. And Eileen, I want to ask you, as a white woman with a fair amount of privilege, what lessons or messages did you think were important to teach your children? Like, what was your responsibility as their mother to teach them about race? And then after Eileen answers, I'd like Lisa and Homa to answer the same thing, because what's really important with today's conversation is to really emphasize the fact that talking about race isn't the same talk based on what race you personally are or your children are. So Eileen, can you start us off, please? So I had an experience before I became a parent that actually influenced how I think about this. I was leading a service project for Quaker kids who were predominantly white, and we were going to do a service project in Chester, which is a predominantly African-American community with high rates of poverty. And the night before, we were talking about what we were doing, and I'll never forget this one white boy who was from an affluent white neighborhood said, the only thing I know about Chester is that my mom locks the car doors when she drives through it. So that just made a real impression on me, the idea that we're teaching our kids about race all the time, not just when we have the talk, right? Yes, exactly. And that message of fear was the message that I got. That's what I saw. My mom never really talked about race, but she showed a lot of fear. So one of the first things I wanted to do was raise children who weren't afraid. And so I did that by bringing them to places where they would be in the racial minority. I wanted my white kids to just be used to that. As I got older, I thought a lot about how to explain injustice without falling into what I think of as the two big pitfalls for white people. (laughs) One of them is to kind of paper over it and say, we're all the same, that used to happen, but now we know it doesn't matter, you know. 
on the one end, and on the other end, talking about injustice in a way that develops pity and not empathy. So as they got old enough to hear stories about racism, that was the balance I tried to strike. I didn't want them to feel like they couldn't relate to their African-American or other kids of color in their class. But I also wanted them to understand that their experience was different. Lisa, what about you? What did you feel like you had to teach your children as a Black woman raising Black children about race? I think that Black children come out of the womb being socialized about race. I don't think that there's anything that I had to specifically say, and now we're going to have a conversation about race. I think that's what's very different about Black children here in America, that we are socialized from moment one, even before we come out of the womb. Honestly, that's a whole other conversation, but that's what happens. And so when it was time for me to start having conversations about things that just happen almost by osmosis, because I remember the first time my daughter Olivia told us that she wanted to have down hair when all of us had dreadlocks and we thought all of our hair was down and we didn't know what she was talking about. And then I was heartbroken that she meant straight hair like her friend Abigail's. And so then the conversation became more about honoring and understanding who they are and being comfortable in their own skin because everything on the outside says, no, there is nothing that is around them outside of the space of our home, our family, our village that affirms who they are. So really making them understand and constantly affirming who they are and their experience and making them understand that they are seen differently. Their experiences in a lot of spaces are unique because people come with preconceived ideas. You know, if my husband was parking the car and we ran into school early and, oh, who is he? Oh, he's their father. Like, you know, we're together. And I mean, there's just all of this other baggage. And really helping them to understand that this is just really the America as it has been for so long. And this is what you're going to have to navigate. This is so interesting because essentially— You know, I feel like when parents say, you know, "Ah, what's the right age to talk to my kids about race? I do hear black people who are saying, like, I have to start talking because they're, you know, they want the white baby doll Mm. or somebody said something awful to them. And Mm. I don't want to bring them down, but I want them also to feel proud of who they are. Mm -hmm. But also then you hear it from white people who say, you know, I don't know if I want to teach my child or I don't think they should have to hear about these things at this young age and maybe I should wait until they're older so you just help me find out. But just in these two versions, it's two totally different things, what we're talking about of what we have to do to equip our children Mm -hmm. to function in a society that was literally built on this foundation, a false one I might add, but a foundation where race reigns supreme. So that's two. Now we have a third version, which my guess, even though Homa and I haven't had like a pre-session talk, is that her conversations with her children is also going to be different about what was her message that she thought she had to teach her children, Homa. So I guess there's a couple different angles to this, of course. On the one hand, I am the child of immigrants, and I myself am an immigrant, And I know that it's a very common practice for immigrants to come to America, strive to pursue the American dream. And I think often what comes with that is sort of a denial of seeing race, color, difference, and being so focused on assimilation. Now, in my family, it was a little different. And some of that comes from our faith perspective. I was raised in the Baha'i faith, and there is a way of almost this shorthand terminology in the Baha'i faith that talks about the most vital and challenging issue, and that's racism in America. And so it's like there's all the issues, and then way up here is the most challenging, the most vital and challenging issue. And so from a young age, I was extremely fortunate that I got to see race and talk about it and have friends, like my mother's best friend growing up was African-American. And so I didn't live in 
a segregated ethnic community, as many immigrants may. And so it's almost been like a, not consciously, but it's almost like turned into like this life mission to help others who didn't grow up that way to become more comfortable having these conversations. So then by the time I had kids, the conversations on race, the interracial friendships were really just something very natural to my family. But never, I mean, it's never easy. You're always going to be challenged. I always find blind spots that I have in assumptions. My kids call me out on those. And I think that's healthy. And so I've been fortunate to, I feel like it's a muscle. And so with my kids, like talking about, sometimes it is couched in like harmonious terms. So from a very young age, I advocate and I have done with my own children, like seeing the world like a garden. We're like flowers of a garden and the flowers are going to be different in the garden. And that's beautiful. And you can get into more details about what the flowers look like and what color they are. And even I love this new analogy about the condition of the soil for the flowers to grow. But from a very young age, kids can learn something like being like flowers of a garden. And then this age-appropriate sort of appreciation of diversity as opposed to sort of a tribal mentality that I think many people, based on fear, you know, like Eileen's story indicates, or just ignorance of so many people around us, that won't dictate the way that they think. So it's a little bit of an approach of getting ahead of it, if possible, by making it something we talk about. And again, I hope that the message that everybody comes away with, if it's only one message at the end of this episode, is that these messages are going to be different based on who we are. So you all said something different about what the message was for your children. So I want to ask you now, like the follow-up is, how did you teach that message? Eileen, how did you teach them about injustice? How did you teach them not to be fearful? And do you think you were successful? (laughs) And I mean, I don't mean to like judge your parenting, but, you know, in some way or another, can you talk about whether or not you think that the message was learned? Well, in terms of being fearful, I made a really conscious choice when they were young to go places where they would be in the racial minority, even the supermarket. We live in a neighborhood where 10 minutes this way is a predominantly black neighborhood, 10 minutes this way is a predominantly white neighborhood, and I would go shop in the predominantly black neighborhood I think when it came to starting to talk about things, I really relied on what they brought up because kids are very observant and they're very inquisitive and they start at a certain age, they want to make generalizations about things. I'll never forget the first time my daughter really, she had noticed skin color, but the first time that she understood that that had social meaning was when her nursery school took a field trip to a senior citizen center that they visited every month, and they usually, like, glued popsicles. And this one month, they landed on MLK Day, and someone had clearly given a presentation that was not geared for (laughs) three-year-olds. And she came home, and she said, Mom, is somebody going to try and kill Sam, our next-door neighbor, who was African-American? I was like, what are you talking about? And she starts trying to recount what she learned about racial injustice from this presentation. And I was like, Oh, my gosh, you know. And it was really tricky because three-year-olds don't understand, like, statistical disparities. (laughs) You know, like, yeah, Sam is more likely to get killed by the police than I am. But no, nobody's coming for Sam, you know. So that, that was a tricky one, trying to figure out how to reassure her but also acknowledge this is not just a made up thing. As they got older, I think I find it easier in general to parent older children And I remember things like another set of neighbors. um, There were two African-American kids who my two kids played with a lot. And they would race up and down the street for years. And one day I walked out and our neighbor's daughter was holding a water pistol that they had painted black. And she pointed at me and she's laughing. And I immediately see that this is a water pistol and they're goofing around. And I also see how this is going to look. Because they were right at that age where they look like they should have more sense than they actually have, (laughs) you know? Right. right. And I was like, 
that is not a good idea on the streets of Philadelphia. So I went and I talked to their dad and said, this is what I just walked up on because I knew that he was going to want to have that talk with them, Mm -hmm. to your point Mm -hmm. about the talk is different. Mm -hmm. But then I sat down with my own kids. I was like, look, you guys can get away with stuff that your two best friends cannot get away with. And holding something that looks like a gun on the street of Philadelphia is one of those things. So that was a chance to like really dive into that and again, try and explain the disparity without without making them feel like you don't have anything in common with your friends. You just need to understand that people see you really differently. I'm going to pause you right there because I would like to hear from, you know, anybody, but what, you know, a lot of times people say, I don't think my kid is old enough or I'm not sure if we can have that conversation. And Eileen just gave this perfect example. Her three-year-old daughter at the time comes home and says, are they going to kill my friend? And I feel like today particularly, there's just so much negative, violent, you know, racist vitriol coming from, oh, everywhere. So, you know, this idea of when do I start talking to my kids about race? What do you guys, if you had to answer that question as an expert, as a seasoned parent, what is that time and how do you do it? Like, I'm looking at you, Lisa. I feel like for me, it just came so early. I mean, I remember Olivia in kindergarten, there was a young lady that she was having play dates with that was Jewish. And then one day the little girl said, I don't like black people. And that just came out of nowhere. And I, I know that that child had no idea. Real. I mean, I just think... She must have heard it somewhere. There was nothing in my exchange or engagement with that family that would have made me think that she's heard that at home. Nothing. Especially the way that I handled having playdates. I had to go to the house and have inspections and ask <laughs> difficult questions before I'd ever left my kid, right? But that really hurt Olivia. That's the first time, you know, it hurt her feelings. And then her first instinct was to say, well, I don't like white people. And she didn't have that snappy comeback. But she was going to go back the next day and say that. And I was like, no, that's not what you say, right? That's not how we're going to manage this one. And so, Olivia, what do you think she meant by that? You know, how had she been treating you? Where did that come from? Was there some sort of conflict that, yes, there was. There's something that happened on the playground, and that was just her first. And so that young girl went for the first thing that she thought she could say that would hurt. And, of course, it did. And it took a while for that friendship to repair itself, but I immediately called the parent, and I immediately said, listen, this is what happened, and this is what your daughter said, and I know, and the parent was appalled and asked if we could get together, and we did all of those things. I'm open for all, well, let me be honest, I was open for all of that. After a while, I got tired of it, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm straight up, because I'm tired of always having to address things that I think are just... It's basic. So, but at that time, I was young enough and open enough to want to continue that conversation. And we did. And the parent and I are still really tight. You know, the girls have gone their own own ways and the whole bit, but we're really good friends. But I just was always taught to address it. So I'm hearing then there is no magic age, but you're going to have to address it when it comes up. You can't be like, and then at their seventh birthday, that's when we're going to start talking about race. Eileen, what were you going to say? The research shows that children notice difference way earlier than adults think. And they start to understand that these categories have social power. They don't necessarily understand it. You know, that white girl in Lisa's story, like, didn't really know what she was saying, but she knew that there was some juice there. Exactly. Exactly. And the research shows that definitely by kindergarten, but really in preschool. And I think it's the other big pitfall for white parents is to think, my kid doesn't see race. We're not racist. You know, blah, blah, blah. All that kind of stuff. And so... In response to Lisa's story, I think it's really on white parents to pay attention and to do those interventions if you get wind of anything so that it doesn't always fall on the parents of color to raise things. I would actually, I I love what you said, and it's true. I think as young as two years old, children register racial differences. But I would even go maybe a step further. Instead of being ready for the incident, it's get in front of it. So before the play date, and not because of the play date with a child of a different race, but again, you're having these conversations. You buy the black doll. You have multicultural books that represent heroes of many different 
languages, races, cultures, gender identity is increasingly available, many different hues. So it just starts to become like, yeah, I register that your hair is straight and my hair is curly. Your skin is like Lisa's skin is a little bit darker than mine. And then somebody, you know, you're maybe a little bit, but but that's just like my top is a little bit darker and we're really good friends. And I think the conversation grows with maturity. So it's a little bit like talking about the news. Like I don't talk about the news with my child. If they ask me a question, I will answer their question. But on this one, it's similar in that I'm ready to have the conversation, but I'm going to get out in front of it much earlier, I think. Yeah, yeah I agree with that. And this environment right now, we can't afford it to escalate because I'm also meeting a lot of parents who they think of themselves as quite progressive, very well-intentioned, and their children, their teenagers, are on white supremacist websites. And that's happening. And so it's like, yeah, you weren't, you weren't instilling that as a value of your family. And you need to instill, this is what we're about, before they close the door and they're on those websites in their room. Yeah, and let's um, double down on what these messages, like what does it mean to talk to our kids about race? And we've heard examples of, you know, this happened to my kid, whether positive or negative, whether they were on the aggressive or the, the victim side or the whatever. But Homa, I really like what you're saying that in some ways we need to be instilling kind of this idea of where we all should be, right? And I don't hear you saying, you're not saying like we should all be colorblind. You're saying normalize difference. Right? Absolutely. Normalize difference. difference. Embrace I love difference. difference. Yes, exactly. And exactly. I, I'm going to ask a question. I ask people the time. Well, who do you have sitting around your dinner table now and then? That's Who's huge. coming in and out of your house? Yeah. Right? I mean, if you don't have any people around, exactly. different people around you, yeah. then there's a problem there. Yes. And, and the thing is, like, I really, the reason when I say things like, I used to have these conversations or what have you, they can be tiresome because, to me, it's all about intention. If you mean for it to happen, just like you mean to pay your car note so you can keep your car, then you will do this. You cannot legislate hate away, right? So you have to actively pursue these things, right? right? And there's all different ways that you can do it, but you have to be intentional about it. You know, our race conversations didn't stop. When my son's Asian friends and white friends came in the house, we still had, we had the same jokes. We made to the we had these conversations and I would sit them down before, when my son got into middle school and have conversations with all of his friends. Listen, when you go out with Yannick, you have to be much more mindful than when it's just you by yourself, because this is what's going on. They see him differently. Wait a minute, pause for a minute. Lisa, you're saying you were giving race talks to other people's kids? Mm-hmm. Because they were with your kid. Yes. I love that. I That's love that. Huge. That's huge. I have to. You what am I going to say? your son. What, yes, exactly. If I don't have this conversation, my kids went to school in the city. They would navigate the city without me and my husband after a certain age. Therefore, those people that were around him on a regular basis had to be mindful and understanding what he was carrying with him and what being with him meant. And so, yes, we would have these conversations. And I didn't call the parents up first because by now I know the parents and they know me. But I would just have it because if you guys are going to be hanging out here, going on the South Street to get a slice of pizza or something, then, hey, you got to understand what that looks like. And the rough housing that you do in the house or on our front lawn cannot happen when you're running into GameStop. It's a different environment. Making them mindful of where they are, teaching them about code switching. So this Can is I pick yes, up on yes, one more right thing ahead. Lisa mm-hmm. said. I think maybe the most important thing. So you have conversations, but how many times do you have conversations with your kids? It goes in one ear, it goes out the other. So your example is the most powerful. So if you do not have multiracial friendships, interracial friendships, if you are not having sincere, like not a project, not a okay, now we are going to do, you know, check the box, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but truly who is around your dinner table? 
How do you spend your weekends? Where do you live? Where do you choose to go to school? And I think that's a whole new way of thinking. Like, where do you live and where do you choose to go to school? That's a huge shift. So I have actually the benefit of having almost like two different generations of kids. So with my older children, we moved to the suburbs where it was convenient for my husband's job that located out in a corporate park that was deep in the suburbs. And we wanted to be close to the commute and the quote unquote best school district. Okay. My thinking has really changed on that. That's a code for a white, non-diverse school district. And our kids really are harmed by that because they lose the opportunity often to have authentic relationships with people who do not look just like them. So I think relationships are the key. And there's this line I have a project called The Oneness Lab with Eric Dozier, who's both my brother-in-law and my work pal. And he talks about how diversity is not the goal because the plantation was diverse. (laughs) So what's the difference? That's just, there were a lot of bodies in one space, but the relationships were not there. The power dynamic was different. Mm-hmm. So it's way deeper right. than just having know, checking the box. Yes. Right, right. Mm-hmm. It's the relationship. I want to talk a little bit. I want to shift this just a little bit because I, I mean, I do call myself a diversity diva, and I love <laughs> the idea that a lot of how we educate our children. Again, it's not just a conversation; it is a continuous conversation from you know age three to age it's, thirty-three. It's a lifestyle. It's a complete. Mm-hmm. But it, like you, yeah, it's actions, and our actions show that we value people of different heritage, of different backgrounds. But I also want to talk about another conversation about race, which kind of dovetails back to what Lisa was saying originally that. For people of color in this country, particularly, a conversation about race has to be about, like, that you're good enough, that you're beautiful. It has to be a counter-narrative to what the rest of the world is telling you about yourself, right? And I actually, kind of the impetus for this this conversation we're having today was I was having a conversation with a white woman, a friend of mine, and she said something like, raising my kid, my white son, like, he doesn't have to struggle, Like the struggle he has is like, did he clean his room? And so she was saying something how like she didn't mind putting him in some situation that was difficult because she's like, what else does he have to struggle against? He's the most privileged. He's a son of two married professors, you know, who lives in a big house. He needs to struggle. And it just never, like I never thought of just how vastly different our parenting is in terms of She's like trying to come up with ways to make her kids' life a little more difficult. And I'm trying to make sure that my sons don't get killed because of what they're wearing, right? So I want to talk a little bit about those conversations as a person of color, what that racial conversation is. And then, Eileen, have you had, Eileen and Homa both, what does that mean for you? Eileen, you kind of hinted at this idea of like, I don't want my children to pity other people. But what does that conversation, and again, takeaway here is that there isn't a conversation about race, right? It's not a one and done, and it's not one conversation. Lisa, do you want to jump in on that? This idea, like, that message, again, and it's not a one-time message. No, it isn't. It's an ongoing thing. But just what you said, I mean, I just, sometimes I will be in the car, my husband's driving, not me, right, this time. and, And I'll think about something. I'm like, it must be so freeing sometimes to be that person, like, not to have those concerns like what is that like to walk through the world of and it doesn't mean that you don't have problems but there's a certain amount of freedom of not having to consider certain things because I'm telling you my spidey sense never goes away I'm awake with it right I sleep through it I feel it at all times and so I just feel like this is Part of the honor, and I'm speaking more specifically about Yannick, because I thought about it more when I found out that I was carrying a son, like what that meant, because I'm an only child. And I, you know, then our first child was a daughter, but there was another level of heaviness that came upon me when we found out that he was a boy. All of the things that I had to be mindful of, right? And 
One thing that we haven't touched on that I think really, I know it impacts how I parent, is not imparting my racial baggage Mm. on my kids. Yes. Because they could walk around with a mighty attitude at all times. (laughs) So I'm working to unload it, right? I did not want to do that to them. And so I want both of my children to experience a certain amount of freedom. And what does that look like for me as opposed to how that might look for your child or your children? What does that look like? When my children, sometimes they're in other countries, I see a certain level of freedom Mm. because we have the privilege of traveling and going in other spaces where their beings aren't so noticeable. noticeable. But I do, I think about that a lot of Yannick and his desire to be independent and experience the world, both locally and beyond, not saying no all the time because I'm so worried about his being. But check this out. Right now, what's going on in the city of Philadelphia, I'm not allowing my boy out after 8 o'clock, you know, in the city because gun is rampant. And listen, that's fair game, right? So I have to be mindful of these things. And I tell him this. I talk to him about it. doesn't make it easy, but I do. Mm-hmm. So it's those are the limitations, right? Right, absolutely. And thank you for bringing up the idea of what I don't want to do is teach my own racial baggage. And Eileen, I see you nodding because I know racial baggage in a different sense is what you had to make sure, like you had to unlearn a lot from your mother, right? Talk about that because we know that, you know, we are who we are. We are results of our parents and our environment. How did you make sure that you undid that and didn't pass it along to your children? Well, I think it's lifelong. You know, I'm still unlearning. And sorry, I know you, I've heard your stories before. So can you just give a tiny hint of who your mother was and what I mean by what you had to unlearn? So my grandparents were Irish immigrants on my mom's side and on my dad's side, it was potato famine. So all Irish all the way, you know, (laughs) cousins had a parking sign that said only Irish can park here, you know, that kind of family. And for my mom, the way it came out was two things absolute fear of the ATM or walking down the street, you know, with her purse. But the other was around interracial dating. So the first time I got asked out on a date by a black guy, she just lost her mind. And I was really shocked because I had gone to an all-girl Catholic school that was diverse. I had diverse friends from kindergarten. And as far as I saw, now I could go back and ask, but as far as I saw, she didn't treat my girlfriends any differently. But Boys were a different thing. And so that revealed this chasm that became like a very painful split in our relationship. I felt like you hate people I care about more than you love your own daughter. Like, what's up with that? So it's the flip side to me of privilege. Like, I'm not worried about my son getting killed. You know, I haven't had that experience. But I do think that racism is bad for white people, at least on a spiritual level. There's something really messed up about feeling divided from the rest of humanity. And on a practical level, too, there's all these books about, you know, why we white people vote for you know, repealing Obamacare and <laughs> no action on climate change and all these things. So I think there's an argument that racism is actually bad for white people, but it's not bad in the same kind of daily way that Lisa is describing. And so there's something tricky about talking about that that I think is important. The other thing I was thinking about when Lisa was speaking was I used to teach a college class on race at University of the Arts. And I remember a young African-American woman coming to me and saying, like, I have this problem and I'm wondering what you think. And she said, I really believe that I have every opportunity, that, you know, I can be whatever I want to be. And I have this uncle that whenever he sees me, gives me the talk, like, you don't know how bad it is. And, you know, the world's racist and everything's going to be terrible for you. And she's like, and I don't know what to say. How do I manage that? And I was like, oh, my God, what do I say to her? Because in a way, I wanted to say both are true. Like, there's something about internalized depression, right? I don't want you to feel this message that you can't do because of your race. And also, your uncle's not crazy. You know, (laughs) he's talking about... His real lived experience. And we've had a few references to times changing. And I just want to acknowledge that when my kids were young, 
this stuff wasn't as visible to white people. I think, you know, maybe for Lisa, it wasn't that different 20 years ago. But for white people, like a lot of liberals in my social circle, really thought we were past the worst. So this moment, as Homa mentioned, is bringing things forward in a way that, in a way, makes the conversations easier because you don't have to go look into the civil rights movement (laughs) to make the point. It's on the evening news every day. Yeah, exactly. Homa, did you want to say anything at this? I just think that having kids learn about their privilege, and that's an age-appropriate discussion, but being aware of privilege, I have to say, I was not aware. I mean, I had both racism directed at me and at the same time, certain privileges. So I don't think I was aware of privilege until well into my 20s. I remember I was on a trip, a professional trip, and I was traveling with a friend who was an African-American woman, and our hotel room got messed up, and I just immediately started arguing with the front desk to fix our situation. And then later, she pulled me aside, and she said, do you realize how much privilege you practice there? And I have to say, at that time, I did not. Mm-hmm. And it was such a powerful lesson to me because she kind of walked me through the incidences. And it's sort of, you know, Peggy McIntosh's right. unpacking, unpacking the invisible mm-hmm. knapsack yep. is really powerful for anyone to read. And it's not to be internalizing guilt and shame, but it's to be aware. And um, I always remember my youngest daughter was about 12, 13 years old, and we were playing tennis in our local park. And we're playing, and then in the middle of a miraculous ball that actually went over the net, (laughs) um, this white boy walks right through our tennis court. And my daughter, who was like 12 or 13, she looks at me and she goes, white privilege. (laughs) (laughs) And I was so proud of her because it was like, yes, Mm -hmm. You named it because she was capable of recognizing what it was. But I was deep into my 20s before I really understood it. So I think learning how to name it and identify it is, it's important because it's that kind of metacognitive, you're aware you're going to be thinking about what you're going to be thinking about. And, you know, you don't have to be mired in heavy awfulness, although I feel like a lot of times I am feeling that now seeing a lot of things going on. But I think our kids can learn it. Something else I think it's important that I, like you're saying, as I became older, I'm owning and just moving it forward. I'm really trying to encourage my children to own where they are and who they are and how that informs, as opposed to trying to shapeshift in order to be a part of this environment. So I'm hearing we need to normalize and celebrate diversity. We need to make sure that we don't teach our racial baggage. We need to have these conversations continuously, right? Not once. And ideally, we need to get in front of the conversation. We don't want to be defensive. We want to be offensive, right? On, mm-hmm. on the <laughs> offense. On it's offense, like, right. <clears throat> on the, we don't want to be offensive. The takeaway. Right? And listen, sometimes Lawrence we have to be said. offensive. Sometimes. <laughs> so... Speaking of offensive, actually, it's a perfect segue. Maybe proactive. Proactive. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Not offensive. not offensive. (laughs) We're going on the offensive. Anyway, um, so this was something that I wondered um, when we saw, like, what do we have to teach our kids about race is, like, people of color thinking they don't have to also emphasize the importance of diversity, what is offensive, to teach about other races because we're so busy, like making sure our kids aren't getting shot or whatever it might be, or, you know, making sure that their heritage is being respected. Who has time to teach them? Or do we have that responsibility to also have to teach our kids, like, this is what the immigrant experience is like, or this is what your Asian friends may or may not be dealing with? That's another thing that I realized that people of color often, I mean, and I'm, you know, guilty as charged, you know, when sometimes... Um, I'm okay. I'm admitting this on my podcast so the whole world can hear it that, you know, there were times on Martin Luther King Day, the day of service, I'd be like, look, we're black. We don't have to do the extra yeah, projects hey, because, like, mommy's tired. That's what I'm saying. Right? <laughs> so, Every day. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm like, we've done all the work. Mm-hmm. Let them do some work. 
which is clearly not the approach, I know, but that is another talk about race, right? It's not like if you're Black or you're of any of color that you don't have lessons to teach your children, right? No, right. So I say, first of all, I don't think Black people can be racist. No, they can't. But we can be biased as hell. Yes. And prejudiced. And we have and racial... Ba- the, the, when everybody talks... Eileen's mentioning her, her mother. Right. I mean, if I could tell you the conversations with my grandmother or even my parents, I, like, want to die because of some of the things that they have said. said. Right. Right? Exactly. So I just think that... I do think that we have to teach our children and nip those things in the bud when we hear them. And again, being expansive in our experience with them. We really have to. I think that it only makes them better human beings. We have to address it. We don't get a pass on any of those things. Not at all. Right. Absolutely. So um, before we wrap up, like all three of you have done some really interesting, you know, small level. Eileen, you just mentioned some that when your kids were younger, you deliberately went shopping at the grocery store where there were it was a predominantly black grocery store. Homa, you suggested with your third child, you had a different idea about schooling. And I just think it's so important. Again, we say when we've established that this conversation isn't a conversation, it's an ongoing thing that we meet our children where they're at chronologically, what age they are. But also what we do, we model, right? And we we show them what we value by where we put our actions and our emphasis on. So again, where I'm sending you to school, where we move. And I often tell people when they say, well, we're moving to this neighborhood and there's no other black people. So I don't know. And I'm like, then why are you moving there? You know, it's not a good idea. So don't just say like, well, we have to. There are things you can do. So Eileen and all of you, I just want to take this kind of last moment to Mention one or two things that you guys have done in your life to demonstrate, not just talk. Well, in the grocery store was when we were new to Philadelphia and didn't actually know many people. So I completely agree with what Homa said about both Homa and Lee's like, who's in your house, right? You know, who's coming to dinner? And so making an effort to develop diverse relationships. I totally agree that that is a big part of it. Bringing... I was like, I'm sorry, didn't you take your children to black churches also? Well, uh, there was one time my son loves music. He's actually a musical studies major. So like when the Morehouse Glee Club performed at Enon, I brought him because he loved music and I wanted him to hear different kinds of music. I will say that for white people, like that's the kind of thing where you have to be prepared for your kid to embarrass you because he got there (laughs) and he looked at her, he goes, gosh, there's a lot of black people here. He's like six. I'm like. Yep. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) He also asked why he had to wear a nice shirt. And I had this like moment Mm. of panic, like, is it okay to say black people dress better for for church than your family does? (laughs) And I'm like going in my mind about, you know, cultural difference. I'm like, you're six. Just put on a nice shirt, you know. Um, but the last thing I wanted to say, I wanted but wait, to, do you think it's okay to say that to I a do. six-year-old? Yeah. Well, I think so. <laughs> I <do> yeah, <laughs> but it was a lot. We were like trying to get out the door. Yeah, and yeah, there is something about like cultural difference being distinct from like innate difference. Mm-hmm. It's not like you know, they don't uh, just people, naturally dress. Th- exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's just it's going to right. church right now. This yeah. is, they still right. <laughs> yeah. Um. But the thing I wanted to come back to, you asked earlier, Laurie, um, do you feel like you've been successful? And I had this incident with my daughter after Trump was elected where she was a college sophomore and at a liberal arts college. And there was a lot of anxiety on campus and conversation. And of her three best friends, two out of the three are girls of color. And she ended up getting invited to this gathering that was like basically all the black students in, on campus talking about how they felt about the election. And she listened, and when we talked about it later, she's like, Mom, you didn't tell me enough. You didn't explain, you know. Mm. Like, I didn't understand all these things. And so my first reaction was like, oh, she's right, I failed, I didn't teach enough, (laughs) you know, I should have brought more books. And I do feel like my thinking has evolved over the last 20 years, and I wish I had done what, you know, had more books and all that kind of stuff. And then afterward, I thought, like, wait a minute, you have enough cultural competence that you were the only white girl invited, invited to the black thing? I was thinking, I was like, yo, you got invited. You, you were and, good to go. And you had the capacity to sit there and listen and learn and then come home and order your own books on racism. So actually, I feel like I did okay. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with reading or eating well or anything. We try and give our children tools, but we cannot control what they do it in their life. We just hope that we gave them enough tools to navigate 
So that's, that's where I came out with it. That's, that's excellent. And thank you so much for sharing that story because, Eileen, I just think that like you were one of the most, I hate this term, but one of the wokest white people I know when it comes to your parenting and your own awareness. And so the fact that your child isn't like, I don't know what the prize would be, but like, that's reality. That's what we can hope for, that she has friends of different races, like wasn't just her friends when she was five, but as a college student, she still feels comfortable and feels empathy, right, for people who are different from her. Homa, I know you picked up your family and moved to... We're the extreme case. <laughs> the Gambia, was it? Yeah. We, yeah. Moved, we lived in the Gambia for just a term of school, but it was... Um, it was almost like a desperate measure. From the uh, suburbs. From the yeah. suburbs, from our lily white suburb. And at the time, my youngest was three and the older two were in middle school. And it was an amazing social experiment in a lot of ways. We had family there, so it wasn't completely out of the blue that we went. And it's a much longer story, but... It was fascinating to see the impact on the youngest child, especially on, on all three. It had a quite an impact, some of which you don't really see until much later. And it isn't what you always expect. But with the younger one, her immediate impacts on her were a really different sense of beauty. So her older sisters wanted blonde dolls, picked out blonde advertising, whatever, the youngest always wanted dark-skinned doll, anything, point out a picture, which one is the most beautiful. I think it really changed her perception of the world. And I see in her now differences that it made. And it, it also, there were funny, really cute things. Like within three months, she had a Gambian accent when she spoke English, which was adorable. But I think that is an extreme measure, and it made for really great material that I wrote about in Growing Up Global and on a blog and various things. But I think the takeaway that's more useful is that not everyone's going to pick up their family and has the ability to do that. But it made me look for more opportunities immediately around me. So if you think you live in an all-white area, you're wrong because within a very small radius, likely, of wherever you live in the United States, you have access to perhaps an ethnic grocery store, people, real people that you can talk mm -hmm. to, that you can befriend, that you can invite, who may feel very alone where they live, to cultural opportunities and experiences, like going to see that choir that Eileen talked about, or going to a church of someone whose belief or culture is very different from yours or whatever it may be. Like you start thinking about what the opportunities are. And I think that's one of the benefits of the time that we live in is there are all these opportunities or like, what are you picking out on Netflix? So it is potentially very small steps. And that's that's kind of how you can start, I think, building. It's that intentionality we're talking about again. It's you know, being, very intentional. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's very intentional. Ask your friends. Ask somebody some questions. I know for me, I mean, I still have the issue even though, you know, we live out in the suburbs, but it's very diverse. But our kids are going to school. They went to school that they were predominantly white environments. And so any extracurricular activities outside of school, I had to work hard making sure that they had the exposure. I needed them to be comfortable around black folks. You know? I hear you. And, and mm -hmm. so how, what does that look like, you know? And so really making sure that they had exposure. But that's what everyone has to do, yes. right? And that's why access is so important, mm -hmm. right? That's why, you know, it cannot be a financial thing about not being able to expose children to different types of experiences because that's just going to make them better human beings, Absolutely. So if we're going to let the dollar be that thing that separates us, that class issue, mm -mm, you're right. It is all around us. And so how can we make things more accessible for everyone to have a level of engagement? Absolutely. Eileen, did you want to add something? Yeah, just reinforcing the point about intentionality. I agree that what we do in person is the most important thing, but we're in this world where 
on the internet, algorithms decide what we're exposed to. And so it's important to recognize that those algorithms will give us more of what we've done before. So if on Netflix you watch Shakespeare in Love and Pride and Prejudice and <laughs> Sense and Sensibility, Netflix is going to think that all you want is rom <laughs> right. comedies by right. English period people, right? They are not ever going to show you programs right. featuring people of color. You have to actually look for that or the internet and all these search things that search you, things mm-hmm. are not going to give them to you. You know, you have to make more of an effort. Thank you for that. And I, I just want to add my own, you know, I haven't really talked about my own experiences raising mixed race children who are black and Spanish. So they're binational. I mean, they are do, from two different countries. They speak two languages. One of them presents as black or definitely of color. And the other two are kind of ambiguously brown. And there's a whole lot of different messages that I feel like I have to teach each one of them individually. And then, you know, all three of them have, you know, somewhat of a a similar a lesson. Didn't you write a book about that, Laurie? <laughs> yeah, I think I heard I about that. I did. It's called Same Family, Different Colors. Mm. Um, <laughs> look for it at bookstores near you. But the thing that I feel like I um, have learned, and again, I have like that two generations of children. I think I'm smarter with the third one than I was with the first two. The thing that I feel like I have done well, and again, doesn't mean my kids are going to come out perfectly, but is just having this conversation be part of the conversation. Like every dinner time, you know, we can have a conversation about skin tone, hair type. We can have a conversation about the dumb racist thing that somebody said. And my three children, all of them, even the eight-year-old, can feel comfortable talking about skin color, talking about race, talking about something being racist. It's kind of bad because my older sons, you know, a few years ago, they would say, that's so racist. They was like a joke. Oh, yeah, and right. so my daughter's like, that's so racist. And she'd be like, Cheerios are so racist. And we're like, you're not, not using no, the word I, properly. That, that's not what it means. My son was the same way when you he know? was younger. I, used to use, I was like, so we made him use the word green to see if it worked. <laughs> You know, just flip out racist for green. Does it work? Right, right, right. No, no it's not racist, Yannick. That just happened to <laughs> right. you. Okay? Well, it had nothing to do with race. Right. That's so green. Right. We had, right. um, yeah, we had to, like, tone back that a little bit mm-hmm. because the, the little yeah. one was, like, a little bit too obsessed, you know? And, you know, at one point she came home and said, um, Mom, I have a new friend. She's white. Is that okay? Yeah. And I'm like... Yes. Did I ever give you the I idea? Know. Like, And she was like, but, you know, so, so, but... If nothing else, I feel like my children have the language and they don't feel that this is a taboo topic. It's not the one that we pull them aside for, close the door and whisper about. Like the sex talk. Right. Right. Now, that's a different story. But the point is that I think that if there's nothing else, you know, is that you feel like this is a conversation that should be had continuously, that it's a conversation that the whole family should be involved in. And it's not a like, you know, only for serious times. I think that's the other thing is that talking about race doesn't have to be a downer as well. I mean, talking about diversity and difference and exploring different things is also the conversation. It's not always the reaction to the horrible thing that we saw on the news. I think we do our kids a disservice if we act like talking about race is only the Mm -hmm. bad negative talks, right? I think that's the power of frequency. You right. frequently have these conversations so you can iterate. You can say a ridiculous thing like our Cheerios racist and it doesn't matter because you're going to have the conversation tomorrow and the next day and the next day. So you're iterating and it's not like, oh, what a failure. What a disaster. Mm. It's like, whatever. And you're going to laugh about it tomorrow. On the point about things don't always have to be depressing with my social justice trainer hat on, I really think it's important that we tell stories of resilience and Mm -hmm. stories of resistance. You mentioned MLK Day. Well, every year on MLK Day, kids heard the same story about the King dream speech, and they heard about Rosa Parks. They heard nothing else about Fannie Lou Hamer or, you know, Joanne Robinson, who really made the march happen after Rosa Parks got arrested, especially in this era people are so hopeless or they think it all rides on one election, it's really important to me that we tell stories of people who have made positive change, that we have those role models, regardless of the race they're from. 
Oh my gosh, like I said, this could be an episode times seven. So I wish we could keep on talking, but I'm sure people will hit their stop buttons because they're at home sitting in their driveway now and they're like, I've got to go back inside and, you know, (laughs) start making dinner. So before I let you all leave, though, could you please tell everybody if they want to read some of your work or see what projects you're involved in, where they can find you on the interwebs? Eileen, we'll start with you. Please go to EileenFlanagan.com. Right now I have a free download if you sign up for my newsletter called Five Tips to Avoid Discouragement While Trying to Save the World. That's a long one, but sounds perfect for time right now, right? And of course, I will have links to all of these things, but it's good to hear it. Flanagan.com, they can find all of that. Right. Excellent. Lisa, what about you? Please check out our students' work at Philly Young Playwrights. Our podcast is Mouthful, and you can learn more at mouthfulphilly.org. And Homa, what about you? I'm in the process of changing some websites. So the easiest way is probably go on Twitter. And I am at HomaTav, H-O-M-A-T-A-V. Then there will be links and maybe the last thing I was thinking about that day. (laughs) (laughs) And Homa, tell everybody this new project that's about to launch for you. Yeah, it's called Global Kids. And I actually brought a copy with me, but I won't get it and rustle all the (laughs) papers. It is activity cards that expose children ages five and up, really all ages, to thinking globally, exploring cultures of the world. And I think of it as a little bit of decolonizing kindergarten because it's really centering stories and experiences that you don't always hear. Indigenous culture that's alive, not a relic from the past. Kind of a broad look at many different cultures, but through different activities. So, for example, we have a card on Rwanda But it's really Rwanda as an innovative country because it's the first country to ban single-use plastic bags. So we have an activity that is around that, you know. So it's kind of, it is a single story from a place, but it's trying to tell it in a new way that's fun and light and not heavy because it really is kindergarten sort of level. But it can be like a conversation starter and it's beautifully illustrated and we're really excited about it. It was complicated fun. It sounds exciting. And it sounds like the kind of thing that everybody who listens today should have a copy of. And if I were Oprah, I'd be like, listeners, everybody gets a copy. (laughs) You get one, right? One day, Oprah, (laughs) uh, one day. So thank you for sharing that, Homa. How would people get a copy of that? No problem. Is it something that'll be in bookstores or? I hope it'll be in bookstores, but you know, you can look up Global Kids and my name, it'll be Amazon, but it's through Barefoot Books, which is a really lovely multicultural children's publisher. So, of course, I'll put links in the show notes so that people can find it as easy as possible. So thank you, ladies, all for being here. I really appreciate you all and keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. you. Back at you. That was such a powerful conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Lisa, Eileen, and Homa really brought some great perspectives and information to this topic. I hope you took something away from the episode that will help you in your conversations with your children. I know I did. Here are my three takeaways. One, if we're going to be talking about race with our children, it's not a one-time conversation. It's a conversation that's got to be constant and continuous. Homa said frequency was the key. So having those conversations all the time, having them on a regular basis, and making them a normal part of your family's routine. Number two was this idea of celebrating difference. We know that we need to not wait for something negative to happen to our children to start talking about race. We need to celebrate difference and diversity and different racial and ethnic backgrounds from the beginning of our education of our children, starting when they are, you know, even as young as two years old. So the books we read to them, the movies, the TV shows, the people who we have in our house, all of that education should begin at the earliest moments of our parenting. And number three, we also need to tell or make sure that we're telling our children stories of resistance and resilience, that we're not making conversations about race, only negative conversations. We just need to make sure that when we talk about race, that we're talking about stories that can also uplift and encourage our children as well. I know I'm going to take these lessons and use them in my own parenting, and I hope you do too. 
If you feel like it, leave me a message on myamericanmeldingbot.com and let me know what your takeaway was. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed episode 18 of My American Melting Pot, and I hope you did, please take a moment to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. This helps more people find and listen to the show, and it makes me feel good. Another way people can find the show is if you just tell someone, tell your friend, tell a colleague. You never know who might need some melting pot in their life. I literally was just talking to my doctor this morning about all the cool things we talk about here on the podcast, and by the time my appointment was over, she was a new subscriber. Dr. Metta, if you're listening, hi! Don't forget, you can find the show notes for today's episode on myamericanmeltingpot.com, where you can also find fresh new melting pot content every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And if you're just too tired to read a blog post, you can also just look at all the pretty melting pot pictures on our Instagram account, at myamericanmeltingpot. See you on the interwebs! Episode 18 of My American Melting Pot was recorded at WRTI Studios in Philadelphia. Our editor and producer is Brad Linder. Our sound engineers are Joe Patty, Tyler McClure, and Paul Marchesani. And our theme music was composed by Sumi Tanoka. Thank you for listening. And always remember to live your life in color. <laughs> <laughs>